Well, welcome to Brettonomics, uh, a podcast series brought to you by the Bretton Woods Committee. Um, this podcast looks at the, inter- at the institutional framework for international monetary and economic cooperation that was begun at the historic conference at Bretton Woods in 1944. I'm Nancy Jacklin, and I'm hosting this series. And so far, we've been looking at um, the institutional framework for cooperation in international monetary and financial affairs. And we started by looking at the IMF, why it was created, what its core mission is to maintain international monetary and financial stability, and how it does that. We talked about the IMF's central role uh, in uh, resolution of sovereign debt crises. We then talked about the period of the 1990s and the 2000s when the capital markets and financial system became much more complex and interrelated. And the crises of the 90s and the uh, the great financial crisis of 2008, which changed the institutional architecture a bit and it added the Financial Stability Forum and the Financial Stability Board uh, to do more in the way of looking at the financial system and, and, and trying to prevent or contain systemic risk. We also learned about other parts of the framework, the G7 and the G20, and what that kind of political level guidance um, uh, means for the system. Today, we're going to look a little more deeply at the framework for regulation and and oversight of global financial markets and the financial institutions that participate in them. Banks, broker-dealers, investment advisors, investment funds, insurance companies, and others. Now, each nation regulates and supervises their own markets and institutions. But as I said, as the global economy has become more integrated, and financial markets have too, there's been an increased need for cooperation and coordination of these responsibilities on an international basis. And as I said, as we saw in the 90s and and the 2008 crisis, financial market dysfunction can easily spread globally, affecting the international financial system more broadly. My guest today has hands-on experience to talk about these issues. Stefan Ingves was head of the Central Bank of Sweden from 2006 until his retirement at the end of last year. And during a large part of that time, he was also chairman of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. In that key role, he was a member of the Financial Stability Board as well. Before heading the Swedish Central Bank, Stefan was the director of the Monetary and Financial Systems Department of the IMF when I got to know him, and was in that role a member of the Financial Stability Forum. Stefan has also been a vice chairman of the Bank for International Settlements and served in a number of roles in the Swedish Finance Ministry. So you can see Stefan brings a wealth of knowledge and practical policy experience to our conversation today. I'm delighted he's here. Welcome, Stefan. Thank you. Um, so let's let's now dig into the substance of our podcast. Um, we uh, talked, as I said in the prior podcasts, about the need to establish the Financial Stability Forum and then the FSB to better coordinate all the bodies and forums involved in oversight and understanding uh, of financial markets and institutions. But to get a better sense of why the change was needed, I thought it would be helpful if you could describe to us what the arrangements were before that time for coordinating uh, by national regulators in key financial sectors. So first, what specifically is the famous Basel Committee for Banking Supervision 
When and why was it established? What were some of its key achievements prior to the creation of the FSF? Well, first of all, after establishing uh, the Bretton Woods system and its uh, institutions, global trade and cross-border capital flows increased uh, steadily. While at the same time, uh, there were many, many and different exchange controls in place and other types of restrictions. These restrictions were gradually lifted. And this happened in an environment with very marked differences between countries uh, when it came to what they actually did. But the direction uh, was uh, pretty uh, clear and uniform. Markets and the establishment of various financial activities became more and more and gradually intertwined. And this is a, a process that has continued to this, uh, to this uh, days. At the same time, central bank governors had met in Basel since 1930, and they were used to discussing uh, financial uh, markets and financial matters at the global level, but it was mostly done from an exchange rate or a macroeconomic uh, perspective. But then all of a sudden, sudden back in 1974, a German bank called Bank Herstadt ran into trouble, and it became obvious that when one bank, what one bank does in one country, it can affect both foreign exchange markets, it can affect banks, and it can affect others abroad. And uh, it became necessary to actually better organize and increase international cooperation in this in this field, in order to ensure that. Uh, financial stability is maintained, but also in order to ensure that there uh, would emerge a more uniform view on how you look at banks uh, when it comes to what they do. And this held particularly when it comes to cross-border banks and also actually uh, conglomerates. And to achieve this, after a bit of founda foundational back and forth, the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, uh, and uh, formed uh, the Basel Committee for Bank Supervision, and it was established in 1974. And uh, then, of course, given that it was the BIS involved in doing this, its, it loca its location was in Basel in uh, Switzerland. Now, uh, since in, at this juncture, most of the BIS work was done by central bankers, but supervision sometimes is, is located within the central bank, and sometimes it's actually located outside the central bank, and it, supervision is actually de facto organized all over the world in many different ways. Uh, it became necessary also to include uh, supervisors and not central banks uh, only. So supervisors were actually brought into this group. Now, the BCBS has a long history uh, before the establishment of the Financial Stability Forum, and the, the BCBS is a well-established and a well-known standard setter in its own right. The creation of the BCBS made it possible to discuss banking matters at the global level. It made it possible to keep an eye on financial sector risks, and fairly soon, uh, the BCBS actually moved from just discussing in general terms into technical work dealing with capital adequacy, dealing with credit risk, dealing with market risk, uh, and how to consolidate cross-border banking and cross-border banking uh, conglomerates. 
much of this work was actually done at a highly technical level, but ultimately all of it, all of it was always supported by the central bank governors at the BIS. Among the early achievements uh, of the Basel Committee was uh, what is called Basel I, which is a standardized approach to calculate minimum capital requirements, and mostly back in those days dealing with credit risk. Basel II followed, and that was an extension of Basel I, and a, a much more technical undertaking, uh, drawing on fairly, back then, fairly recent knowledge of how you actually uh, calculate the risks. And setting the technical achievements aside, a key component of this work was uh, basically increased uniformity and increased acceptance of how you look at what banks do and how you supervise banks and keep track of what they are uh, doing. And all in all, the bottom line is kind of simple. If you belong to the club, you were accepted, you expected uh, to follow the rules of the club. And despite its lack of formal decision-making powers, the BCBS actually gradually became the global standard setter for bank rules. And so uh, particularly among what we call large and internationally active banks. That's great. Well, you know, I remember from my own my own work experience the importance of having uh, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision uh, established in the early 1980s when I was at the Federal Reserve Board and we were uh, struggling with the problems of the sovereign debt crises. Um, both Chairman Volcker and our U.S. Congress were very anxious to increase the capital and reserving of all of the major banks that were involved in the in the lending. Uh, and to try to fortify them to take on actual or potential losses from that activity. What Volcker fully understood is this was not just a U.S. problem. You had banks from all over the world involved uh, in these uh, syndicated loans, um, uh, many of them very active, whether it was in the U.K. or Germany or Japan or France or uh, Switzerland and that none of them had really been adequately reserving against the risks of this um, very large uh, lending activity. He also understood that if he tried to impose new capital standards on U.S. institutions, there would be huge political pushback on how it was going to make them uncompetitive in the global markets. So we really needed to try to do increased capital standards in, in, in a uh, in a uniform way uh, internationally. And fortunately, the Basel Committee was there or we would have had to invent it. <laughs> uh, and so that's kind of how Basel won, I think really got some real momentum to get going and uh, kind of the beginnings of making uh, the Basel Committee a, a real pillar of global banking safety. So now there were, there were other parts of the financial system and there were there were separate regulators for those institutions. Can you tell us a little bit about IOSCO and what that's all about, why it was created, and what it's looking at? Sure. Uh, IOSCO, complicated name, stands for the International Organization of Securities Commissions. And IOSCO today is uh, the global standard setter for, uh, for the securities sector. And... Uh, like most standard setters, IOSCO 
actually gradually evolve over time. And uh, essentially, because when there has been a problem that needs to be solved, when you need to do more, you gradually do more. And then uh, you do gradually more in an organized way within the securities field. And that is what IOSCO has done. IOSCO was established back in 1983. And today, I think IOSCO covers more than 90% of the world's securities markets in a very large number of uh, jurisdictions. IOSCO actually originally started as a regional initiative covering North, North America and South America. But fairly soon after 1983, they became uh, global uh, in a way similar to uh, the BCBS. And they turned themselves into a standard setting body within the securities market field. And uh, just to give you an example, one issue high on the agenda today is uh, to how to define green securities. And that's a typical project of, of, of IOSCOS uh, when it comes to what they are uh, doing. Now, uh, one difference, though, is that in addition to public sector members, IOSCO also has affiliate members. And an affiliate member uh, represents self-regulatory standard-setting uh, bodies. And here we're talking essentially about stock exchanges and other types of, of institutions dealing with the securities market. And also, actually, pre-FSB, IOSCO adopted a comprehensive set of objectives and principles for securities regulation uh, back in 1998. And all in all, as I said, the evolution of IOSCO has some similarities with the creation of the BCBS, but with more complexity. And that because uh, they have a larger number of interested parties, and they also have, I think, more divergence or diversity at the global level. Yeah. I mean, for the U.S., for example, because our, our futures markets are so important, uh, the, the, uh, the chairman of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission's involved, as well as the chairman of the SEC. So it's really for us two agencies. So um, now the, th the third big sector, financial institution sector, is insurance. And there is a, the IAIS to uh, provide some coordination there. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yes, the IAIS uh, uh, is the International Association of Insurance Supervisors. That is the formal uh, name. And they are a global standard-setting body uh, responsible for developing standards and assisting in the implementation of principal standards and guidance uh, within the insurance uh, field. And the IAIS was established back in 1994 and has members from, I think, more than 200 jurisdictions, basically covering most of the global uh, insurance market in one form uh, or the other. And the key role of the IAIS is actually quite similar to the BCBS and IOSCO, but of course within the insurance field. And a bit similar to IOSCO in the early days, IAIS also actually had uh, private sector members in the form of individual insurance companies. Mm. Uh, but uh, that ended some time ago. So today, basically, I'd say that IAIS is pretty much a copy of, uh, let's say, the BCBS uh, uh, structure. 
And that also holds when it comes to the work that, that they do and the kind of governance framework that they use when they do their work. And the IIS also happens to be located uh, at the, in Basel at the, at the BIS. So their job is to essentially make sure that the insurance companies all over the world and supervisors dealing with insurance are running in this, ideally in the same, uh, in the same uh, direction. Okay, well, then, then there was something created, uh, a joint forum for these three bodies, for the three, three bodies of, of uh, supervisor coordinators, the, the banking, uh, insurance, and securities uh, bodies. Why was that needed? What was the motivator to establish the joint forum? Well, fairly early on, it was realized that banks are not kind of standalone entities. And uh, sometimes banks are part of a conglomerate. Conglomerates can be designed in many different ways. But one way or the other, you also had, in some instances, insurance companies and securities firms. And you have three parties in different combinations, varying in different shapes and forms all over the, uh, all over the world. And then it became clear that uh, the three standard setters actually needed to talk to each other. And there are a number of good reasons, uh, good reasons uh, uh, for, uh, for that. Suppose just for the ar- sake of the argument that when you set capital standards in a conglomerate, you have very different capital standards. Well, then that you can have many different outcomes coming out of that. One serious issue is what I call capital arbitrage, which means, of course, that you sort of move capital in, around in such a way that you minimize the capital in the system as a whole, and that is dangerous. And that created a need for supervisors from these different fields to keep track of and discuss among themselves what was going on. And as a minimum, if you have different capital rules, then at least the different supervisors need to understand or better understand what their colleagues are doing in these, in these other, uh, other markets. And I think that this is actually a very good example of how how these standard setters and the work that these standard setters have been doing over the years, how it evolves over time. Because when it became necessary to cooperate or when it made sense to cooperate, uh, uh, that cooperation started. And it wasn't only uh, cross-border, it was also cross-sectors. And without, without much sort of formal ado, uh, people just realize that we're better off, all of us, if we start talking to each other. But but still, we we had so we had this system in place, but we still ended up with a number of financial crises. And and I guess the the policy officials uh, who were dealing with it uh, felt that we needed some kind of um, better approach to coordinated supervision. And also to seeing kind of looking at issues at a higher policy level uh, than than the uh, the day to day work of the of the supervisors. Um, there was also a sense, I guess, of some gaps in the system, especially as to the relatively unregulated hedge funds and other uh, non banking financial intermediaries. So the G seven, as we know, uh, created the Financial Stability Forum. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it was intended to do and who its members are and how it really worked. Well, first of all, when it comes to these uh, processes, one can argue about it, and it, there is an element of them being what I would call disjoint. 
But that's because usually uh, we tend to think that there is a plan and that, that you sort of know exactly what you are doing and that the world is in some sense orderly. Uh, but in the real world, things happen, and plans evolve over over time. And uh, there is rarely sort of from day one a perfect plan, so you have to change things when you go along. And now when it comes to the Financial Stability Forum and, and what they intended to do and where it uh, came from is basically it came out of the, glo uh, the Asian financial crisis or all the things, or the, depending on how you look at it, the strange things that, that happened back then. We're talking about Thailand in deep trouble, Indonesia in deep trouble, Malaysia, Korea. We can argue about whether one should add Japan or not. Anyway, it created a lot of activity. It created a lot of soul searching, and it created a debate about how to best avoid similar episodes in the future. And then that, of course, created the issue what to do. Now, the G7 finance ministers and central bank governors commissioned back then a study how to fill the gaps in the, in the international regulatory patchwork of committees, standard-setting bodies, and international financial institutions. Now, this group was chaired by Hans Tittmeier, then governor of uh, Deutsche Bundesbank. And in my case, newly arrived at the IMF, I participated in various meetings on the topic and also actually with Governor Tittmeier and IMF top management. From those meetings, it became clear, in my view, that the IMF could easily uh, both organize, run, and coordinate the meetings at the global, uh, at the global level. But at the same time, it became very clear that such a setup was not in line what the G7 and, and Tittmeier wanted. So the Financial St Stability Forum was back then to be a G7 controlled entity consisting of G7 plus a few more countries and all the global standard setters and the IFIs. In the early days, this uh, created actually quite a turf battle, both among countries among institutions and also within institutions. And given my financial sector background, and after some infighting uh, at the IMF, I got a seat at the table, sitting next to the first managing director, Stanley Fisher. Uh, now, since both countries, all standard setters of that day and the IFS, IFIs were at the table of the FSF, the FSF was actually in a good position to focus on the financial system as a whole, and particularly uh, on gaps in the regulatory framework. For example, covering non-bank financial intermediaries, anti-money laundering, and the combating of uh, fina uh, financing of terrorism. These were early uh, on, the, on the agenda. And the umbrella organization, it was there, it was put in place, and it set out to create an agenda. Well, it seemed to me in, in terms of that tension at the time on, on whether to try to, to house this, this new kind of body uh, or focus at the IMF or, or create this, this new entity. Part of it had to do with the ethos of central banks or what one of their central functions is. And certainly from um, 
central banks are very concerned about what happens if one of the large institutions in their jurisdiction starts to have funding issues, particularly large banks. And then they, as central banks, have a stabilizing role as lender of last resort. So they're very reluctant to sort of give up control um, or not have a very big say in what the rules are on how the bank's business is conducted because those issues can directly affect whether they're called on to provide this emergency financing. So, I mean, the FSF was clearly a bit of a compromise. It made sure that all of the entities that had a role in looking at and overseeing uh, financial markets and financial system stability were at the table, but made sure that central banks continue to have a pretty uh, substantial role in the process. So, um, so we got the FSF and... Uh, as you said, it was created to oversee the work plans and priorities of the standard setters. Uh, it was also there to assure that there was adequate communication among them, which obviously was started with the joint forum, and identify gaps in the oversight system and how to address them. And one reason the FSF was established after the Asian crisis was because of the need for emerging markets, countries in particular, to try to get a better scheme of banking supervision and regulation for their own, uh, for their own markets. Uh, and also that was true of low-income countries with developing banking systems. So the FSF that didn't really have a staff uh, of, of any real size or any implementation mechanism to try to get the, the standards that were being created by the standard centers really implemented uh, in a serious way, at least in all of the major jurisdictions, and then spread it out to the others. Um, they then uh, handed off to the IMF and World Bank the task of conducting assessments of their members in implementing these standards and codes that were being developed by the supervisory bodies and standard setters. So why were those two institutions really well-suited for that task? Well, that's because since the creation of, of, of the Bretton Woods institutions, they have acquired and developed a unique capability to go on mission all over the world. And this in combination with the country desks at headquarters. And this has created a deep, and I would say actually a very deep knowledge of both fiscal and financial sector matters. And also, given the large uh, number of uh, countries, no individual uh, jurisdiction or almost no individual country actually has the capacity to uh, go to all these uh, places and do it, so to speak, bilaterally and on your, uh, on your own. And that, that meant that uh, the World Bank and the IMF, particularly the IMF with all its country desks, actually knew how to run the business, if I, if I put, it, uh, put it that way. And they had the capacity to operationalize, right. to make right. sure that you create an output out of, uh, uh, out of this. And they also had the resources to, uh, to do it. And they knew how to do it. And let me give you one example. In the early days... The IMF started an assessment program of all offshore financial uh, centers uh, in the world. And this work was uh, reported to the FSF. And uh, 
the FSF certainly back then did not have the capacity to organize such a project in their in in their early days, and this is something actually that took several years to uh, complete. Well, I, I so so that's the FSF, and then in two thousand nine, the decision was made to try to make it a more even more credible body after the the great financial crisis, and uh, and it was changed the Financial Stability Board. And some of the key changes were to expand the membership so that it covered the full G20. The, the uh, Financial Stability Fund had started as a G7 operation and was expanding, but not, uh, but not to that degree. Uh, and it, al- it also had an aim to make the conduct of, um, of financial sector reviews of member countries that were being done by the IMF and World Bank uh, uh, accessible and reported to the G20 so that they kind of could give some political attention to an impetus uh, to uh, that process. Also, there was a desire to provide greater focus on systemic financial risks. And in that regard, the FSB and the IMF were tasked with providing a kind of early warning system of those risks. So how did the operation of the FSB really change from the operation of the FSF, in your view? Uh, first kind of all, of- by, by 2009, in parallel, we had the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, created an, an additional or an extra impetus when it came to think about these things and what to do and what not to do. And also in the early days, and this is not surprising, uh, the FSF was criticized for a lack of sort of structural governance and things like that. And that is not surprising because the FSF started out as, I would call it almost like an experiment. But by 2009, uh, the workflow of the FSF was fairly well established. And the de facto roles of the participants had evolved to a point where a kind of corporate structure existed. There was the plenary, there was the steering group, there was various working groups and so on. Uh, But at the same time, this has evolved over time without really much in writing in terms of how these things were expected to, uh, to work. So what was lacking was a more firm governance structure. Uh, which uh, spelled out the role of the FSB chair, the role of the secretariat, how to deal with funding, and a number of other very traditional, what I would call governance issues. And here then the FSF uh, was uh, transformed to become the FSB uh, with a more firm governance uh, framework. But essentially in terms of uh, the focus and what was done, didn't really change all that much compared to what actually Tietmeyer, I think, had in uh, mind originally when the FSF uh, was uh, uh, created. But uh, from reading the statutes, you could actually more easily understand uh, what the FSB was uh, supposed to be doing, essentially who is doing what, when, and why. And as I said, this coinc- it was uh, coincided with the global financial crisis. And that meant, of course, that it was very, very costly. It was difficult to deal with the global financial crisis. And it was uh, quite complex and complicated to get out of it. 
And it's not surprising then that there was a push, again a push, I would say, now what do we do so that it does not happen again? <laughs> and that's a kind of a recurring theme uh, when these events uh, uh, occur. And then turning the FSF into the FSB, uh, that was the right thing to do. But let me add to that in addition that it was also a clear signal, I would say, in the international uh, framework that there needed to be a more focus on uh, financial sector issues and not just discussing macroeconomic imbalances more uh, broadly. And that is because financial systems and banks and countries, they fall apart one by one and they don't fall apart in the aggregate. And when you talk about macro issues, you talk about it in the aggregate and it's easy to sort of cover up, so to speak, what is, uh, what is going on. But this sent the signal that we need a specialized body focusing on financial sector issues. And we need to find a structure such that those financial is sector issues in one way or the other are actually brought to the fore uh, so that we don't forget about them. Because by then, people were in agreement that if we, if we forget about these things, with a fairly high likelihood, we will run into trouble again uh, sooner, uh, sooner or later. And this is actually also where the early warning exercise kind of emerged and where it, uh, where it kind of came from. How do we do this in such a way that we talk about these things ex ante? And hopefully we get so scared when we hear, hear about the vulnerabilities so that we uh, fix these problems before the whole thing has blown up. And we're at least we're aware of what is, uh, uh, what is going on. And the early warning exercise is a good example of how you get the relevant people in the same room and how you get them to talk about these things in such a way that there is uh, more and ideally much more awareness compared to what we used to have, uh, have in the past. And how does the, in terms of the early warning exercise, what is your understanding of kind of what the IMF is contributing and what the FSB is contributing in, in the way of understanding and analysis and focus? Okay. I mean, the way we talked about it earlier, I said that these structures are complex yeah. and you can, you, can, you can argue about them. And here, what the, the IMF can bring to the table is their knowledge of what's going on at the global level and what is also, what is also going on in various financial markets uh, all over the, all over the uh, world. While at the same time, you have the national representatives at the table, either central bankers, supervisors, or finance ministry officials. And that means that out of this sort of, uh, this kind of collective conversation, you build awareness of what is, uh, what is going on. So it is actually a combination of things. And usually the way to explain this is to say the following way. You have an IMF representative saying country X is not behaving. And then in a good scenario, you have a representative from the country saying that, yes, we are behaving. And then you have a good conversation coming, uh, coming out of that. And in a good scenario, that affects everybody's views of what is going on and also what you should keep track of, uh, given that the risk level probably has gone up in the system in one, uh, one way or the other. And by keeping this conversation going essentially constantly and forever, 
then in in a better world, at least we're roughly on the same page uh, when we get worried about what is uh, what potentially could go wrong uh, down the road. Yeah, yeah. So, um, why don't we step back a little bit and and just give me and I think you've given us a, a bit of a sense of of this already, but. What do you see as the most significant contribution that the FSB has made thus far to reducing financial stability and systemic risks? It's kind of our concluding question. <laughs> uh, it's, of course, difficult to give a, a precise answer, but now the FSB has been around for 20 years, something uh, something like that, and, and uh, the corporate structure, if I use that, those words is uh, well uh, established, and and they're doing uh, doing their uh, do, doing their uh, work. And then in that environment, what the FSB has done and continues doing is basically focusing on financial sector issues, focusing on financial uh, stability, and uh, making sure that there is a constant focus on vulnerabilities. And uh, part of their job is then to try to bring to the fore gaps to the extent there are gaps in the regulatory framework and making sure that uh, they sooner or later are covered in one, in, in one form uh, or the other. But doing that is, is not easy. Mm-hmm. And it actually requires perseverance. You have to keep at it for a long, long, uh, long, long time. And I think that one good example of this is... Uh, the whole issue of how to deal with non-bank financial intermediaries. Mm -hmm. And as far as I recall, the FSB has been at it for more than 10 years. Yeah, I think think it almost, it probably started with a failure of LTCM uh, when hedge funds, right, when hedge funds became very important. So in in terms of of the potential systemic risk that a single hedge fund could create, that was late 1990s. So, um, yeah, I keep looking at recommendations of things and sort of like, so like what's happening, guys, right? <laughs> but they, they keep talking about it, right? That is, that, is, that, that is correct. And here I actually think that the FSB has played a role and can play a role. But at the same time, one has to be a bit humble when it comes to international institutions because... The, the the world is often filled with conflicts of different types and different different kinds, and then what you can do at the global level is to keep talking. Yeah. And sometimes you actually have to keep talking uh, for decades in order to get to a consensus. Yeah. And one way of reflecting on this is is to refer to a meeting at the BIS I participated in several decades, many decades ago, much younger than I am today. And the uh, guy sitting next to me said, Stefan, did you hear that the German representative actually changed his position? <laughs> and I heard, I, have heard, I heard absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> And that's because those who participated in those meetings before me had discussed this for this particular issue probably for 20 years. 
And you really needed to be part of the system to sort of fully grasp that these things move slowly over time. Yeah, that's nuanced. <laughs> and sometimes you have to be very, very patient. Yeah. And just accept that it takes years and years and sometimes decades to get to a consensus. Yeah. And once you have a consensus, if you have been part of the process, you should just be happy and you should never tell others, I told you so 15 years ago. <laughs> no, that's right. And, and as you said, we've got the early warning exercise that's supposed to say, okay, now these are the hot things that you got to do something about now. So, yeah. Um, well, look, I want to thank you, Stefan, for giving us a really good understanding of how the framework for cooperation in supervision and regulation of financial markets and institutions is working internationally. Um, you know, over time, I've, I hear criticisms um, come, come from kind of opposite poles. Uh, one is that the international regulatory coordinating bodies infringe on, you know, sovereign prerogatives on sovereign national authorities. And then I get hear criticism, on the other hand, that the large international bodies are so large that they can only reach agreement on the kind of lowest common denominator of regulation. And, um, it seems to me that the truth lies somewhere in between, and the recommending bodies, after all, cannot require laws be adopted and regulations be a lot adopted in countries. They can name and shame, but that's about uh, all the authority they have. And certainly in reaching international consensus, as you've well discussed in this podcast, it's always a matter of the art of the possible in an international negotiation. And I agree with you. It seems to me it's always better to try to improve the safety of the system, even if you may not get what some think would be the ideal outcome uh, out of the process. So our next podcast, we're going to turn back to the workings of the IMF with a discussion with Siddharth Tawari on the role of the, the institution plays in low-income countries. So I hope the audience will continue to join us. Thank you again. Thank you.